This is Johnny. And Locus. And we are live in the Pine Barrens, where tonight we are doing a first ever internet broadcast, cable, ham radio broadcast, all live, all real. And we are doing it with the help of a psychic and a sound man who has the ability to record sounds from other worlds, otherworldly sounds. Yeah, that's right, Stephen. We're here in the Pine Barrens. Southern New Jersey, live and direct, coming right at you in your living room. First ever web simulcast, cable cast, and everybody is on the edge of their seat. And I know you are, because I am, and I'm sure Stephen is too. Microphone check, one, two, CC, hello and welcome, CC, hello and welcome, one, two, three, four, five, six, she sells seashells by the seashore, she sells seashells by the seashore. There we go, rolling. To be able to make it nowadays, you can't be too much of a specialist. You have to be try to try to be as good as you can at, at everything you do. I'm not saying you know, be mediocre, but I think that having um, knowledge about more than one aspect of filmmaking is really important. I think any any filmmaker worth anything, they're interested by all genres of film, and I think most filmmakers have probably done a documentary or many, you know, as as well as narratives because it's storytelling. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 34. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. One of my favorite kinds of documentary films are often of the making of variety. Specifically, I really dig on the making of films for documentaries. Films like Hearts of Darkness, which followed the brilliant and, and destructive path of Francis Ford Coppola's epic Apocalypse Now, or Lost in La Mancha, the, the 2002 film about Terry Gilliam's you know, never-finished take on, on the novel Don Quixote. They're great examples of this, of this sort of genre, if you will. And one of my favorite films of all time, and one that, I, that I've mentioned a few times on this show, is Les Blank's classic doco, Burden of Dreams, the film that, that chronicles Werner Herzog's insane production of the film Fitzcarraldo, deep in the jungles of South Africa. And as much of a Herzog fan as I am, for my money, I prefer Blank's documentary about the making of Herzog's film better than the actual film itself. I mean, what's not to like about it? It's got just about everything you can imagine. It's got tribal warfare, near-death experiences attempting to, to literally drag a giant ship up and over a hill native non-actors being taught on set how to act, professional actors being forced to endure the heat and mosquitoes and bad water literally hundreds of miles from civilization. Which brings to mind, oh yeah, a particularly bipolar, sometimes maniacal Klaus Kinski. And of course, all of this under the umbrella of one of the classic directors of all time, the master himself, Werner Herzog. One of my favorite scenes, and really moments in the life that is Werner for that matter, is where he's describing his time filming in the jungles, or as he might say, the jungles. But 
When I say this, I say this all full of admiration for the jungle. It is not that I hate it, I love it. I love it very much, but I love it against my better judgment. Here's the thing about these making of films. They are most assuredly a viable way for the documentary filmmaker to make a living, or at the very least, make some additional income on the side. After all, aren't you, as a documentary filmmaker, kind of the perfect person for this sort of work? You're already accustomed to shooting and conducting interviews, shooting B-roll, and then editing stories with the content afterwards. There's even a name for this type of vocation or practice. It's BTS, or behind the scenes, or in bigger Hollywood-type productions, it's often referred to as EPK, or Electronic Press Kit. If you are brought on board a film as the EPK or BTS producer, you're essentially responsible for producing electronic press kits for film and television production companies for use as publicity material for, for members of the press or DVD extras or, or any other sorts of promotional purposes. And in today's opening segment, we're going to talk about the position, what skills are required, and how you might hone those skills so as to make yourself an attractive option as a BTS or EPK producer the next time a film is in your area. After that, we'll get to our Doc Lifer community question of the week, followed by our shared conversation with feature filmmaker, digital filmmaking pioneer, and now award-winning documentary filmmaker, Stefan Avalos. Are you a follower of any of the various social media outlets that the documentary life has? You might think about it if you're not, and here's why. If you'd been following our Twitter account, at MyDocLife, you'd have been made aware of a free live documentary webinar hosted by Academy Award-nominated documentary filmmaker Daniel Rehm. You would have heard about the, the free showing of the documentary Last Men in Aleppo on POV Docs, and you would have been able to read about more interesting material about film festivals that we'd run on our two-part special on film festivals earlier this summer. If you followed us on Instagram at the underscore documentary underscore life, you would have seen all kinds of crazy BTS shots of me doing the, the TDL thing from here in our Airbnb in the UK. You would have read some inspiring and informative quotes from documentary filmmakers. And you would have seen unique photos of some of our doc industry guests in action. Of course, The Documentary Life is also on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash thedocumentarylife. We post regularly about current and upcoming episodes of the podcast. We share more BTS photos, as well as we post additional documentary film-related content that we think you'll benefit from. So if you want to stay further informed of TDL happenings and check out additional material that will help you further immerse yourself in your own doc life, then be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I remember the first time that I'd ever been in contact with a professional BTS or EPK person. It was 2006. I was the boom mic operator on a feature called Everyman's War, which was a World War II pick that was shot in Oregon. You'll remember that one of the ways that I got started in documentary was as a one-man sound band, which just meant boom mic operator and sound mixer all at once, on the Cambodian doc film Bomb Hunters. So this was one of the first professional gigs that I landed when I got back to the States. 
I remember we were set to roll on a particular scene, and I was standing on top of a, of a stepladder, holding the boom high up above some actors, you know, wearing U.S. Army garb and holding rifles while a tank's in the background preparing to swing by. And, and we're moments away from, from going, and I, and I see some dude with a nice-looking stills camera furiously working away at some shots. And, and he keeps edging ever closer and closer to the frame, which I can see because the DP and the camera op are right below me. So close that it... it really started to make me nervous as if I were the only one who saw this guy and and, and, and I'm therefore responsible for calling him off, right? So I nearly shouted out for this guy that he's too close to this set, but but quickly remembered that there were about 30 other crew members around and and who was I, the the freaking boom mic operator, to stop a set. Instead, I I got on my intercom to to the sound mixer, Creed Spencer, who must have been shaking his head when the newbie boom guy pipes in his ear, we got a bogeyman, he's right below me, he's with a camera. To which Creed says in his his sort of grovelly voice, Creed has one of these voices that, that could only come from someone who's a massive fan of death metal and probably practices it himself, or sings it himself. And he says on the intercom, Dude, that's BTS. And of course, I had absolutely no clue what in the hell BTS was at that point. All I knew was that this was one of my first times ever on an actual feature film set, and therefore it, it, it's best if I just took Creed's word for it that everything was indeed cool. Which, of course, I'd find out later it most certainly was. It was just the behind-the-scenes guy snapping stills of the shoot to be used later on for publicity purposes or what have you. After that, after that realization, I think I spent half the shoot completely obsessed with watching this guy weave in and around the set, you know, doing his work with a camera that was in this wicked-looking box and, and didn't seem to make a darn sound, which blew my mind, and discreetly kind of getting into all kinds of areas to get shots of cast and crew, always just barely off camera and always, you know, out of, out of line of sight of the talent. I thought, how cool, man. Now, now that that's a position I could get behind. In June of this year, we had New Zealand documentary filmmaker Costa Boats on the show. It was episode number 28. He was a significant part of our special two-parter about the film festival for the documentary filmmaker. And 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 his film, Act of Kindness, recently was awarded Best Editing on, do- on a Documentary. One of the many delightful topics that, that Costa talked about was, was how he's able to, to put his passion and expertise of documentary filmmaker to good use on the set of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where he had been hired as the EPK guy. Essentially, a large part of, of what he did was spend time with cast and crew filming their daily on-set activities, and, and then afterwards creating these pretty unique one-off short making of videos that could then be used for promotional and publicity purposes for the production company. I've often considered looking more into doing this kind of work myself. As I mentioned earlier, what we do as documentary filmmakers, especially those of us who are wearing multiple hats like director, DP, sound, editor, what we do really lends itself to the position of BTS or EPK. If you can shoot a short interview, take a few sound bites, get some B-roll, and edit a nice little package out of it, then you've got a good shot at being able to do EPK work. And I'll be interchanging any, you know, my use of BTS and EPK here, but for the purpose of what I'm talking about here, they're really one and the same, right? They're interchangeable. I was once in conversation with a sound person that I worked with from time to time. His name was Morgan. And, and Morgan has a ton of experience working in features and TV shows, and bigger ones at that. So he's been around a number of EPK crews. I was asking him how the EPK people were viewed on set, you know, from other crew members. Were they considered sort of the stepsister to the actual crew of the film? Maybe they were just politely tolerated, right? Considered a a necessary evil of the commercial film industry. And what he said surprised me. 
Morgan basically told me that that while he only worked a few times in the capacity of a sound person for for an EPK or for an EPK crew, he loved the work. He described the interesting access to actors and crews business that others weren't always privy to. In fact, I remember him specifically saying to me, if you're looking to get into it, you really should. I bet someone like yourself, Chris, a documentary filmmaker, would be really good at it. And he, he assured me that, that the EPK guys, they were not really looked at as, as second fiddle because they often were working pretty hard at what they did. While a crew might normally have some, some time in between takes or between setups, the EPK guys were often hustling around during this time trying to get with a producer or actor. So on top of their normal shooting, they're, they're trying to get, you know, interviews and shots in between takes. And while shooting was happening, well, they're shooting the shooting as well. To recap what the EPK producer was responsible for, this, I'm going to read a direct description by London-based EPK producer Sophia Garrido. EPK stands for Electronic Press Kit. It is a collection of video clips consisting of interviews with the cast and crew of a movie, behind-the-scenes footage, or B-roll, and a making-of featurette or two. These clips can be used in all kinds of ways. The interviews and on-set footage could be used by, say, broadcasters if they are running a feature to promote the movie, or the featurettes could be included in the DVD extras. There could even be a pre-release campaign where footage is released online, for example, to create buzz around the movie. On my documentary, Journey to Kathmandu, I shot and edited a bunch of stuff that would be considered EPK. I'll bet you've probably done the same on your own projects. It's a, it's a pretty necessary activity for us indie doc makers to be putting together photo collages, you know, small how-to videos, videos for our fundraising, stuff that can be used later on, again, as DVD extras. Promotions of our work is a massive part of what we do, right? So whether for crowdfunding campaigns, video on-demand sales, film merchandise, and selling ourselves as filmmakers, etc., etc. As I was mentioning, for J2K, I was making smaller pieces all of the time that I was using for fundraising purposes, DVD extras, and so forth. If I remember to, I'll put up an example of a making of the J2K soundtrack. Again, J2K is Journey to Kathmandu. I'll put up an example of a making of the J2K soundtrack video to the show notes. It's not amazing or anything, but it, but it's decent enough to get to get an idea of how, how a quick and dirty shoot can add a little something to your social media or pad out your DVD extras. You know, getting in the habit of doing EPK-type work on your own projects is a pretty good habit to get into anyhow, regardless if you're thinking of attaching yourself to a film or TV show as an EPK producer. One of the more important, though often overlooked, practices that you should be doing all of the all the time in your filming is that of shooting stills, right? And we've mentioned this before, the importance of that, and, and it's connected with key, key art. You can't possibly imagine, again, how those stills will be used later on. Blog posts, social media, fundraising, media posters, etc. They will all need what is known as key art, as I mentioned. And stills will be the foundation of your key art. And trust me, the last thing you want to be doing is trying to recreate stills for your key art because you didn't really get all that many to begin with. It's probably less of a worry than in the past since, you know, somewhere somebody's always offset snappy pics from their iPhone. But, but nonetheless, well thought out and professional looking stills will be a huge boon to your production later on. But back to BTS or EPK work, you will have to have your own gear. That's important to remember. That may seem obvious, but it's worth mentioning right here. Because unlike film or commercial or, or TV shoots, gear is not rented. In fact, as the EPK person, it's generally expected that you will be coming with your own gear. 
that's a part of what they're paying for to begin with, your expertise as well as your gear. This, again, isn't generally a huge issue with us doc filmmakers, right? It's, in fact, another good reason good reason to hire us since we generally have our own gear and then it's in good working order. And by gear, I'm talking about camera, tripod, maybe an LED light or two, a lav and a, and a shotgun mic. Yes, on the bigger productions, they might separate out the sound from the video person, as of course was the case on the stuff that my friend Morgan worked on. But oftentimes the EPK producer is responsible for wearing video and uh, both video and audio hats, not to mention the editing hat maybe later on. So yeah, it's it's important to make sure your your working gear is all in, in, in proper working order. A production company is not really going to be all that forgiving if they're paying you good money to produce videos and you're coming back with less than spectacular audio i.e. on-camera mic audio. Uh, test your equipment well before the shoot to make sure that everything is in, is in like I said, good working order. And it's also good to have backups of gear, either in place or, or a phone call away. Again, as the EPK producer, it's your responsibility to be sourcing backups should it ever become necessary. On our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia, I've actually quite enjoyed putting together EPK elements for the film. It can sometimes be a nice break from the pressure of, you know, making, you know, the quote unquote perfect film, right? You can just quickly go through footage, pulling clips and sound bites with, with little pressure and throw a little something together. Sometimes what you come up with, it really might surprise you. It's funny what we can come up with when we put aside our own self-inflicted pressures and we just have a little fun. BTS or EPK work can be pretty satisfying work, and we doc filmmakers are natural fits for this kind of a job. So if you haven't already, you might consider doing some of this type of work and bolster your already brilliant documentary life. Now I'd love to hear if any of you out there have done any BTS or EPK work for films, or if you've got some examples of the work, I'd love to see it and then share with the rest of the Doc Lifers community. So drop me a line at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris, C-H-R-A-S at barongfilms, which is B-A-R-A-N-G films.com. And I'll be sure to put up links in a future episode's show notes. That would be really cool to see some of your guys' work. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Doc Lifer community question of the week. Did you know that each and every episode of The Documentary Life has its own show notes? I mean, I'm sure you've heard me mention them on an episode, but have you ever actually gone and checked them out? Because they often have some really nice supplemental materials that go in conjunction with that week's show. There are behind-the-scenes stills of filmmakers and their work. There are video clips. There's additional information on a show's topic, links to mentioned websites or resources, just to name a few of the things that you'll find within show notes. So if you haven't been regularly going to view show notes after listening to a show, you're actually missing out on materials that will further the week's discussion, thereby helping you best live and lead your own documentary life. So after today's show, go to thedocumentarylife.com and start delving into show notes for today's as well as past episodes. It's just another way to be a part of our Doc Lifer community. Welcome back to The Documentary Life, and now for the Doc Lifer community question of the week. This one comes from a Ben Coop of Ratherby Productions. Ben wrote, Hi Chris, just started listening to the podcast and looking forward to making my way through the back history, really enjoying it so far. In the episode I listened to this morning, you asked for emails on guests, etc., and I have someone that I would love to hear interviewed. 
His name is Ben Knight from Felt Soul Media. He did a doco on dams called Damnation that was pretty cool. And just worked on a Nat Geo doc on The Last Honey Hunters, which from the BTS, there's that word again, looks insane. Would be great to hear him speak about these experiences and if he created some of the situations in Damnation to make it interesting. Or how those happened, you know, like spray painting dams, attempting to kayaking through dams, etc. Plus the whole Honey Hunters shoot sounds amazing. Anyway, thanks for creating this podcast for documentary filmmakers. It's been great inspiration for me to start shooting my first and get things figured out. Kind regards, Ben. Very cool. While the email is not so much of a question as it's a suggestion for someone as a potential doc industry guest, I'm reading it right here for a reason. I want to stress that you have a say. No, actually, you have the say should you choose to take advantage of this opportunity on what TDL is. Your voices are and will continue to be heard. At the time of this recording, I received Ben's email 24 hours ago, and I've already reached out to the Felt Soul Media people. It's actually a really great suggestion. Until I looked these guys up, I didn't know who he was referring to. I'd certainly heard of the documentary Damnation, but didn't know who was responsible for it. And if you haven't yet heard of Damnation, I'll bet that a number of you, without even knowing so, are in fact familiar with with some of their other work. Do you remember a video called Denali? It was a short video, and it went pretty viral. It came out within the past year or two. It was about a photographer slash filmmaker, a cancer survivor, who's spending the last days of his dog's life revisiting some of their favorite spots. This short film is told entirely in the dog's voice. There are tearjerkers, and then there's this film. It's only just about the most amazing man with best friend video that you can possibly imagine if there's such a genre. (laughs) So I thank you, Ben, for sharing this with me and now sharing it with other doc lifers. I thank you for taking a moment to tell me what you needed slash wanted for this show. I'm sure many people will benefit from your suggestion should, dare I say when, we get Ben or Travis from Felt Soul Media here on the show. That was the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. If you've got any suggestions for the show or recommendations for doc industry guests or any other kind of feedback, please email me directly at chris at barongfilms.com and your email could be on a future Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. Again, that email is the best way to get your voice heard and the best way that I can tailor the documentary life to you. So again, drop me a line at chris at barongfilms.com. After this brief break, we'll be talking with a filmmaker who was a massive influence on my film work. His name is Stefan Avalos, and I can't wait for you to hear what he has to say. I am the host of this year's show, and my name is Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is The Documentary Life. If you're anything like me, you appreciate a good checklist. I've got all kinds of checklists in my life. Every night, I'm creating my to-do list for the next day. Whenever we go camping, I have a camping checklist. Whenever I go out on a shoot, I have a checklist with all of the gear, shots, and B-roll that I'll need. So one day, I thought to myself, why not some kind of checklist for doc filmmakers? And so I came up with one. It's called the Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, and it's completely free to any doc filmmaker who wants to learn the essential aspects of making a documentary film in the modern day industry. I am all about empowering documentary filmmakers, and this course does just that. It is my sincere hope that this free course will help make your doc film's journey truly the exhilarating and rewarding experience that it can and should be. Enroll today for free by going to thedocumentarylife.com courses.
Stefan Avalos, welcome to The Documentary Life. It's been a while since we were last in contact. I mean, at, at this point, it's probably at least at least a decade uh, since, I, since I've spoken with you. I, I've kept a keen eye and ear on, on your career, and uh, I'm excited to see you kind of not necessarily move over, but sort of venture into the documentary realm, because of course, a lot of your, your background, which we'll touch upon here in a minute, has been through feature films. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Give us an idea, Stefan, of some of your background and how you came into filmmaking, how that happened for you. Well, I um, I mean, I, I fell in love with the idea of making movies when I was very, very young. I mean, I would say I was like 10 years old. I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, as a kid, uh, those are the VHS camcorder, you know, not even camcorder, but the sort of camera and a separate pack system. You know, we were making <laughs> in our, <laughs> we were making our little, uh, you know, 10 minute you know, short movies in, in the woods in the summertime and, yeah. and had a ball doing that. And, um, and then that translated into, you know, eventually a professional career after school and this and that, uh, my first feature film actually, uh, I made in, uh, and this, this definitely dates me. Um, I made it, um, in 1993, 94. Right. Okay. And that was called the game. And, uh, and that was, um, that was shot on film, a suspense thriller, uh, kind of in the style of the grifters or something. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then after that movie, because uh, that movie went exactly nowhere, even though it was a tremendous success <laughs> in terms of distribution, yeah. I got really shafted by by the whole distribution process there. I never saw a dime. And I think I remember reading about that, uh, you know, years ago when I was first sort of discovering who you were through probably the next film that you're going to mention. And yeah. uh, I think I remember reading that about the game, which, you know, to this date, I still have yet to have ever seen. Is there even <laughs> a way to see the film? Uh, you know, there's a couple of VHS copies that float around. Um, and uh, I think that's the only way it's possible. At wow. some point, I would like to revisit it and do a proper high def transfer of, of the print. Um, but that means actually hunting down the print, believe it or not. Um, oh, and the kidding me. Because no, it's it's really terrible because because the distributor actually has those and you know so I have to oh really get on yeah I need to get on that so the best best way would right, right now or if I went back to uh, to a, an NTSC standard def master and did something yeah. but that of course in this day and age is, is pretty sad right right <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah so having spent you know a lot of money on that movie that was raised on the street and you know in within family and all that. I had no money, so so um, that was followed up by a movie that you know a friend of mine and, and I, uh, Lance Weiler, yeah. uh, and I, we got together. We you know we we both we had no money. We said let's make a movie for no money, and that <laughs> idea transpired uh, because um, because editing at home, digital digital video editing at home was just becoming possible. It had finally arrived, right? Yeah, yeah, it was arriving. I wouldn't even say it had arrived. It was arriving, uh, right? <laughs> it, was, it was arriving amongst many uh, blue screens of death and fits and starts yeah, <laughs> with the computers yeah. and uh, hyper expensive, you know, hard drives and um, this and that. But suddenly, the idea of being able to cut two pieces of of imagery together hmm. at home was possible. Where right. in the past, I had had to rent. Uh, a flatbed or rent equipment or go to a video studio and edit, you know, that way. And, um, and also these very small digital video cameras that were pretty decent in terms of picture quality. And then, so, so that movie that we sort of said, let's shoot for no money, yeah. uh, eventually became the last broadcast. What really happened that night? And is Jim Seward truly responsible? Most people, when they commit a crime, aren't being videotaped like 
you know, when they're doing it or like near the time when they're doing it. It was like spying in on, on this crime about to happen. No one else had the opportunity to commit those murders except for Mr. Jim Stewart. I feel weird about it. Yeah, I know, me too. I, this whole idea to come out into the woods and stuff. You know, suddenly they want to jump into doing you know, big time alive, you know, from the Pine Barrens and have radio and internet and this and that. And, uh, you know, I, I knew it was going to be a fiasco. I, I, well, I didn't really think it was going to end up like it did, but I knew it wasn't going to look pretty. It having no budget for you guys, ironically, unlike the game, this one made some money for you and it, and it made a name for you guys. Yeah, this one did well. Uh, it did very well. And, and sort of to this day is the movie that a lot of people, go, oh, you know, if, they, if they've heard of me, that's, that's why, because of that movie. Which is great. I, I have I haven't grown to resent that, that yet, That's unlike uh, some people have. So um, so yeah. So that that movie and 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 when we went into that film, we decided uh, all right, we got to get rid. Of, we can't use actors because actors cost money. Uh, <laughs> you know, we can't shoot them film because film costs money. Um, and probably shooting something in a very narrative style is going to be impossible. So yeah. we actually decided to do it in a documentary style. Yep. Uh, and, it, and it was a horror movie that we did in a documentary style, which at that time was uh, a very fresh idea. No one was really doing it. No one had done it to our <laughs> knowledge. It would turn out later that there was another movie called uh, Cannibal Holocaust that had a similar sort of idea right. and structure. Not to mention something that would come out soon soon thereafter, right? Yeah, and then and then about a year later, um, another movie came out, which <laughs> had a similar storyline that became very famous, of course, and that's the Blair the Blair Witch Project. But yeah, our movie was first, and uh, and and they were they were fans of our movie; they had seen it uh, before they. So that movie did well, and and that really kind of opened the idea of of shooting. Well, that that opened it up for everybody in the world, also. I mean, yeah. whether it was us or just that the timing was right, or what you know, for whatever reason, um, and there there are all the reasons, you know, that that the, the digital video shooting yeah. revolution began yes. really around that time, and continues to this day with a flood of films. For me, that was my, of course, that's how I, you know, first heard of you and Lance as well. And, you know, even to this day, in fact, I, I think, I believe I talked about this in, in an early, early episode of the documentary life. When someone will ask me about influences on my documentary work, one of the films that I bring up is this film called The Last Broadcast. Because for me, it was incredibly exciting because it felt like the first time that this idea of digital video, right? This idea of being able to make your own film was possible with little to no budget, right? We'd been hearing for a handful of years at that point that, hey, film is going to turn over to, you know, this idea of digital video. It's a real thing. You're going to be able to take your own, you'll be able to afford your own cameras. You'll be able to have your own software. And up until, really up until I saw the last broadcast, and in fact, I saw the last broadcast at a theater in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I believe I'm, I'm sure Lance was at the at the showing of it, and it may have been when you guys and this was another big thing for you guys because it truly was all digital. You shot the film digitally, you edited the, edited the film digitally, and then you you satellite. I remember. Do you remember when you guys satellited this film yeah. out to five places at once? I can't remember if Portland was one of those places or not. But but yeah, the point is. You guys were on the cusp, truly, of digital technology 
and, and filmmaking. And that's why it was such a massive, massive inspiration, I say, to even my documentary work, because it really, it allowed me to believe that here it is, it's possible, I can do this thing called filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, exactly, everything you're saying is exactly the way we were feeling also. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was, you know, and a lot of people were feeling that way, which was really exciting. Um, and yes, in terms of when we did do a theatrical release, which, which we did with the movie, yeah. uh, you know, again, we had no money. So yeah, so we couldn't afford the film prints. So, so we were like, all right, how would we explore the digital thing? Yeah. And it was at that time that the projectors were starting to get really good. You right. know, it was like moving away from that. I mean, up until that point, projection had been like three, three gun, horrible looking stuff that you would see in a, you know, in a bar somewhere, a sports <laughs> bar or at Sears or something. And so, and suddenly these projectors were really kicking ass. Yes. And so, yeah, so we, we had partnered up with Texas Instruments and, and, and DPI, a, a digital projection company, mm -hmm. and satellite company, Laurel Space. And yeah, we, we did that show, that, that road show with five theaters, of which Portland, yeah, that was one of them. Um, okay. Well, there you go. It's, it was like uh, 98, maybe 97, 98. 19, yep. It was 1998, October 23rd, 1998. Oh, incredible. <laughs> that's so, that's so yeah. fantastic. You so, know, Stefan, do you feel like it took a little bit longer than you guys anticipated once your film had come out for, you know, theaters to move over to digital projection? Yeah, because there was such resistance yes. when we started with the movie. And everyone was like, oh, you know, film will never be, you know, usurped and digital sucks and yeah. the cost. Yeah. There were so many. Everybody was whining about why it wouldn't happen. <laughs> and Which is perfect so, for you guys. <laughs> it's like perfect timing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it was a good time. It really was. But yeah. there, was a lot of, there was a lot of resistance. And people were like, oh, the way the picture looks is no good. And, yeah. and you still hear that nowadays from people who kind of – Generally, nowadays, I, anybody I hear waxing nostalgic about film, like, oh, I want to shoot on film, but there are usually people who have never shot on film. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> funny, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like when I hear people like like rag on vi digital video and go like, oh, well, I want to shoot 16, I'm like, yeah, have you ever shot 16, okay. kid? Go load some cameras and come back yeah. to, and talk to me. <laughs> exactly. You, you, go, you go through the process a couple of times and then you tell me whether you want it to. Yeah, do exactly. Because it's <laughs> It sucks. There's <laughs> <laughs> really yeah, kind of no way around it. Yeah, you know, it's like, I've been there, man. Trust me, it, it's not so great. Yeah, right. Let me ask you this. Another yeah. area where you guys were ahead of ahead of the game was even social media. I remember what you guys were doing with the website and sort of yeah. creating this buzz of, and of course, Blair yeah. Witch jumped on this a year later as well, this idea yeah. of, is it real or is it not? Like, is this a documentary? Did, did, did these murders really occur? And mm -hmm. I loved that that was that was a part that I geeked out on as well um, about yeah. what you guys were doing with the backstories um, and the Internet, because that wasn't really being done the way that you guys were doing it as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is it is I it, I almost start to feel like um, like like some sort of pathologic liar when I talk about last broadcast, like, oh, we did that, too. We did that. Too. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, we, did, we did jump on a lot of things that were suddenly available to us, you know, for like little money. And so, yeah, the, the, the website and all our web presence, um, was a big, a big part of it. Mm. And just, uh, using that, that whole social media, I mean, the word, the, the two word social media didn't exist at that point, yeah, but yeah, exactly. using the website as, as promotion was, um, was really, was great and fun. And, and the web in general, we, we built about seven different, you know, sort of websites that would all lead back to the same ones. So if people did sort of searches uh, <laughs> to find out if the movie was, you know, if, if this was real, then yeah. they'd find 
a newspaper article in another website. Totally. <laughs> it was yeah, genius. Totally. I loved it. Yeah, we, we were we were doing that whole fake news thing, uh, you know, before before Trump was. Well, well before Trump. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. What, what did you guys shoot on? I can't remember. That was a, a Sony VX1000. The VX1000, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Which um, was amazing yeah. then, right? I mean... <laughs> That was an awesome camera. <laughs> it was like the Sony VX one thousand and and the D, you know the DVX one hundred was was not maybe it wasn't quite out yet or was it? But those were like no. those were like the classic indie DV yeah, cameras, yeah, right? Yeah, <sighs> now that camera wouldn't come. The VX one hundred wouldn't come out for um, another uh, four or five years at least. And that cam, I mean that camera, I think what what really was the revolution with that camera, and which was something I had been from day one going like, why in the hell aren't they doing this? Yeah. But was it that that, that camera could shoot 24p? So yeah, the DVX100 exactly. It was shooting 20. It shot 24p. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we we had come up. I had come up with this whole kind of homebrew way of of kind of creating this film look. Um, you know, before before 24p was around. You know, so you know with uh, Adobe Premiere 4.2, and it was this very complicated. <laughs> process that took forever to render but it looked pretty good did you do it through after effects or premiere um i did it well i, I used both but i figured yeah. out a way to do it in premiere you did where i would double the timeline and then invert the frame you know it was uh, this whole field thing yeah so so oh, we did that's that that's right i remember doing that back in the day that's right holy <laughs> smokes this is so yeah. great <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's Funny. right oh wow yeah Okay, Stefan, I, I clearly you can probably tell um, I, I could talk about uh, the last broadcast and the digital revolution for, for a lot longer. But uh, in the interest of time and in the interest of, <laughs> of the documentary life, let's get into how documentary happened for you. I think any any filmmaker who's you know, worth anything, they're all, they're interested by all genres of film. Yeah, right. And, and I think most, most filmmakers have probably done a, done a documentary or, or, or many, if they're also, you know, as, as well as narratives. So, I mean, I can't think of, I mean, I think of, you know, Scorsese, Spielberg, um, well, Herzog, like, right. Herzog, like he's gone back and forth between the two, the two mediums all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, all the, all these guys have done documentaries, yeah. um, Jonathan and Demme, so Jonathan Jonathan Demme, of course, yeah. Jonathan Demme, yeah. the late, late great Rob Reiner. Uh, you know, <laughs> he did one of the great podcasts of all time. Yes, exactly. Uh, so he understood the, he understood the format, you know, as well as anybody, maybe better than yeah, anybody. right, right. Uh, you know, Scorsese did the the, the last uh, the last show, the band, of course, the, the band, and he's done many. Spike Love Lee film. has done quite a few documentaries. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think I think you know it's. Because it's storytelling. It, it happens right. to be a real, a real true story. It's it's storytelling. It's and um, and to this day, obviously, and I think every documentary filmmaker knows. You know, you have to sometimes fight with um, just ignorance, and I, I don't mean that in anything any malicious way, but just the ignorance of, of sort of the public that they're like, oh, well, the documentaries are those. Well, those are just those things of real life. They're those. They're not really. You have to understand. No, this is a this is a movie as well as in in every facet as a narrative film would be, um, or at least it should be. Uh, you know, and and there and a good documentary is is a is a beautiful work of art, and it's also really damn hard to make. <laughs> it is funny, but that's changed in the past decade, big time, right? People's perception about documentaries and and what they what and how they can be such great forms of storytelling. 
Yeah, I think I think in terms of the general public, that's changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, not that I went to Temple University, but in Philadelphia, Temple University, which was one of the big sort of film schools there, uh, they do really push documentaries. So, yeah. so I was so many of the filmmakers that I was uh, friendly with uh, were were making docs. So, so I, I knew uh-huh. quite a few docs makers so it wasn't quite uh that's that whole uh, not at resistance but just ignorance of documentary filmmaking i think was kind of a real west coast thing mm. um you come out to la and, and everyone coming out of usc and ucla right, and, you know the, right. they're all narrative guys i mean that's that's what they're pushing they're pushing people yeah. who are going to go into hollywood which is fine you know but uh but definitely documentary on the east coast was um kind of a lot more popular but it was also a lot of very poor hungry filmmakers <laughs> <laughs> right. they would end up doing movies about bugs as you're saying or yeah. or you know god help them corporate video you yeah, know? of course so. of course i mean i've done plenty of corporate video right i mean and, and, yeah, and there's a, plenty of our audience who who has and, and still do yeah. absolutely it's a it's a part yeah. of how people live their doc lives it's a big part, and yeah. actually, that was probably it was probably the biggest way that documentary filmmakers made a living. Yes, and um, so I, I, so even though I was an narrative feature filmmaker, I had done a lot of doc, quote unquote, doc work. Right, uh, right. You know, in the corporate video world yeah. on the East Coast before I before I moved to California. Okay, and then and then actually, um, you know, starting with the twenty, you know, really around two thousand and 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 here in L.A. Um, you know, reality television became so huge. I mean, that's it, right? Reality was such yeah. a huge component to the popularity of Doc. I'm convinced. It, it absolutely was. Even though it's, it's. I mean, most of the time, it's the lowest form of <laughs> documentary. Yeah, exactly. There is. I mean, it's it's it's, it's really terrible. Right. And you know, and I do still work in 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 reality a little bit. Yeah. And and it's interesting to hear these kind of producers uh, talk as if. They're creating art and and using these sort of this vocabulary, yeah, the language of filmmaking or cinema, right? Yeah, but they're also using this kind of bastardized vocabulary that's very reality world and 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 using it as if it's you know some and you're like and I look at them and I'm just like geez, <laughs> you know Frederick Wiseman, you know? <laughs> and it's right. uh, it's it's just really something but you're no uh, frederick wiseman <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh i'm sorry you don't know that name man I, yeah, I understand. They, like, you, you can wiki him when you go back to your go yeah, back to your I, meetings <laughs> and and that that's one of the sort of frustrating things if you're a, a real you know sort of doc guy right in that world a lot of times these people have no idea of a real documentary and who they are and who who the giants that you know whose shoulders we stand upon are um, or the work. So that, that gets to be frustrating. Um, but you also do get to learn if you're in the field, you get to learn how to shoot fast and That's right. get your coverage and, you know, get your, get everything you need. And if you're in post, which is where I spent most of my time, you learn how to edit real fast. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have to be able to look at footage very, very sort of, uh, clinically and say, is this going to work or not? And I think that that was actually, um, you know, a real good education for me. I'll bet it uh, was sh- cutting cutting shows, yeah, because you know the turnaround is is amazing, and um, and I'm not saying that we deliver art, but but you learn how to how to cut ruthlessly, and I think that that as a filmmaker is an important thing to learn, especially as a doc guy, you know, because because so much them. footage to go through, yeah. right? Well, reality television has has really kind of. Um, 
uh, uh, allowed uh, it's it's taught the public to watch documentary um, or to watch movies that are not complete fiction, I should say, because I really don't like to use the word documentary and reality together too much. Understandably so, right? Yeah, but it really has taught them to um, to watch movies that are not entire fiction and and to enjoy them, which is really cool. outside like this in the sun. This is the way the old masters did it. Fuck. This just isn't gonna work. I'm a nobody. I didn't go to school. How do I differ from all these thousands of other violin makers? A great violinist could really get my career going. What kind of sound are, are you wanting to, to achieve with this instrument? A very powerful sound. Yeah, well, I'm gonna do it. Now, how much would you charge? I was looking online and the, the sex dolls that people make are over $7,000, some of them. I believe that anything that I have ever done was with the help of old masters. I believe that they guide me when I ask them for help. I truly believe that. These clamps suck, man. I'm not even a trained violin maker. How am I going to do this? Oh, this is really fucked up now. Everything that can go wrong had went wrong with this. Everything. Oh, we should light one of these candles. No, 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 because we've got alcohol everywhere. It will blow up and we'll be dead. The film is Strad style. I'm speaking with Stefan Avalos and, and Stefan... I, I watched Strad Style last week, and I honestly, I, I had a really, a particular feeling about this film when I reached out to you, and, and I had just seen the trailer. And after watching the film, uh, to say I was not disappointed would be a vast understatement. Uh, <laughs> I, man, it's it's amazing. It's amazing what you, what you uh, stu- the, the, it's amazing the subject, if you will, that you stumbled upon here yeah. and what you did with the film. Why don't you give us a, give us a synopsis of what Strad Style is about, and then let's get into to how this film even happened for you. Sure, yeah. Um, well, the movie's about this, this guy out in the middle of nowhere, um, Ohio, <laughs> And, uh, and for, you know, all intents and purposes, you, you really would think he's a hillbilly kind of guy, you know, sort of someone who would be into red state sort of things, NASCAR, maybe who knows, Yeah. but he's actually completely obsessed with violins and violin making and the violin world and, um, the classic, the classical violin world of, of old. And, uh, even though he has no formal training and, um, has learned everything via the YouTube or the internet or, you know, books or whatever, he's self-taught, um, completely obsessed, uh, with violin making. And, um, on the internet, he convinces a world famous uh, concert violinist, a European (laughs) concert violinist that he can make a perfect copy of the most famous violin that ever existed in time for a concert. So, which is about as audacious a statement as saying to a race car driver, Oh, I can make you a formula one car, even though, <laughs> even, though, even though you have a machine shop. So, uh, yeah. And, and, and we follow, uh, him, his name is Danny, Danny Hauk, Daniel yeah. Hauk. Yeah. And we followed Daniel's journey, um, to see what in the hell happens. And, and, uh, and it's, uh, 
it's hilarious. It's heart wrenching. It's uh, unnerving. It's hopefully tense. It's you know, it's all those things. If you could see me, I just have a huge grin on my face, which I did the entire damn time I'm watching the film. Um, <laughs> and it's just, it, it's just Daniel is he is nothing short of amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, really it's just like the perfect subject. What I need to know is <clears throat> at what point did you know that you were going to make a film and when did it start for you? Because, you know, it's not clear. And of course I'm trying to figure this out while I'm watching it right on the fly as a filmmaker, I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure out, well, when did Stefan hear about this guy? Yeah. When in the story, did you kind of come aboard? When I initially started this movie, uh, it was an entirely different, different documentary. It was, I was uh, making a movie, a documentary yeah. about, obsession with violins yes. and it was going to be this, this movie about this sort of three plus century obsession with uh trying to figure out not just what's the secret of these great stradivari violins but this kind of like um king midas like obsession with people wanting them and coveting them and whether they were violinists or violin makers trying to figure it out or scientists trying to figure out the science or yes thieves trying to steal them counterfeiters trying to fake <laughs> yeah. them you know, magicians, the whole works. And so, uh, I started shooting that in 2012, believe it or not. Okay. In Paris, uh, there was a big experiment going on where they were doing these double blind tests with old versus new violins. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was the Pepsi challenge of violins. Exactly. The (laughs) Pepsi challenge of violins precisely. And, you know, and again, you know, some of these 300 year old violins that are worth millions of dollars and against when I say new ones, I mean the bet, the, just a handful, the best of the best of the best of the modern makers. Right. Uh, and, you know, sort of doing <laughs> these different tests. And it was really interesting. And so I had been shooting that. And I was shooting over, the, you know, over the next couple of years, I was shooting all over the place, uh, New York and um, here and Indianapolis and uh, Italy. And, uh, you know, to do this this kind of big doc. And, and through the grapevine, I heard of this guy in the middle of nowhere, uh, Ohio. Um, I heard from a, from someone who was a friend of a player in the Columbus symphony that, you know, if you want to do a movie about a guy who's about people who are obsessed with violins, you've got to meet this guy oh, out there. You know, he's wow. You know, he, he does like candle magic in his garage and he's got like <laughs> tattoos of height, you know, violinists and stuff on his hand. You know, he's just really out there. He has an extraordinary and, headscarf collection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Right, you know, it's just like, and so I went out there um, visiting him, figuring he would probably just be about five minutes in the movie, like kind of like this sort of tangent. Oh, wow, like, that's amazing. You know, yeah. It, and and as I was shooting with him that first day, and yeah. actually the very first day I shot with him, which was in like 2014, yeah. uh, is in the movie, and that's when he comes sort of walking into the room with his handful of violins, and he's you know showing his uh, tattoos and things. <laughs> that was the first day I met met Danny. Yeah, I've got the uh, Guarneri Del Jesu. I have this as a separate Strad model instrument. And I have this was the first instrument that I made, uh, Stradivari model, Golden Period. I've got Strad that I did a long time ago. That's the from the famous, song. yeah, that was from the famous painting, the Strad painting that's supposedly Strad, which might not be him. I think I'm going to get a Strad label and a Guarneri label done on me, too. I'm going to get, get all, all of the uh, violinists done. But the hype is one of the most important ones. He has to go first. He's the king. <laughs> this sits in the back window of a lowrider. This is a lowrider plaque. Usually this says the name of a car club. 
but this is one that I had made to put in this, what I call the Strad car. The mixture of interests that I have is so different as far as the low rider crowd and then the violinist crowd. When I mix these things, they don't know what to think. This is the switch box on it that you hit the switches. It goes up and you tap it up and the motors send the fluid through the hydraulic. You know, I had these random different things that I do, but the violin is always going through my head. I mean, it's, it's, with this tattoos and everything, that's in my skin. There's no, there's not going away. There, it's gonna be there forever. To do something to make a, a lasting effect on the world, that's what's important. And to me, you know, there's nothing else I'd rather do. At least with the violin, it's something I can share with people and that'll be here when I'm gone. And and then I went back and was, uh, you know, trying to figure out the rest of this movie I was doing. But all the while, I think, like, the, the most interesting and, you know, kind of amusing stuff I have shot is Danny. Uh, and then a year later, and I kept in contact with him, uh, as I did with, you know, most of the subjects in the movie yeah. that I was working on then. And about a year later, he told me that he had um, that he had talked to this guy in Europe, this concert violinist. And that he was um, gonna, that he was gonna make him a violin, and so it was at that <laughs> point that I was like, "Oh, now I think I have a story really? here." Really? Because there's an end goal of making a violin. Yeah. Uh, which I had discussed with Danny, and I thought about. It. I was like, "Well, it'd be interesting if I could follow him making a violin, and maybe, maybe I can, you know, show we can show it to a violin maker or something. And that would be the end." So, but when Danny, of his own accord you know, sort of told me like, yeah, this guy's, I'm going to make a violin for this guy. And it'll be, it'll be like this famous violin, the old Canone. I was like, Oh, uh, okay. You know? So, so that's when I started following him. And that was uh, sort of in 2015 in October. So then I went out there in November of 2015 yeah. and shot. There's a, there, there's a great lesson here that I, uh, that I, I would like to point out Stefan for, um, for all the fellow doc, you know, documentary filmmakers out there. And it's this idea of, you know, we all, we set out to do these documentary projects. And when we do, we always have this idea in our mind, what the film's going to be about. And I swear nine times out of 10 on any of these projects, the, what you set out to film, the story that you thought you were going to come out with is not at all the story that you end up with. And, and, and yours is just yet another example of, of how that happens. You, you, you put all this time, all this research, all this energy, trips abroad, filming, and it wasn't until at least maybe a year into that that you suddenly stumbled upon what, was, what would become the story of your film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was two and a half years, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> so great. And 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 that is and that is yeah, that's an incredibly important takeaway that people learn either the easy way or the hard way. Yeah. You know, if you try to shoehorn a documentary into the story you want to tell, it's, <laughs> it's generally going to be it's not going to you know generally be good. And it's not truthful documentary filmmaking. Right. You really kind of I mean, if you're trying to be honest to the idea of documentary filmmaking, and 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 this is where of course many people have written sort of thesis papers about this, but you know. Um, if you're trying to be truly objective, it means that you cannot allow yourself to get too involved in uh, manipulating the story. Right, right. Uh, be it in terms of production and your ideas going in or, or when you're in the uh, editing room. And you've so, got to be able to allow, you know, through the course of filmmaking, 
in you know in documentary filmmaking you've got to be able to allow the story to kind of you have to be able to allow these areas where the story will kind of tell itself and some characters will reveal themselves if you don't like you're saying if you sort of remain stodgy to this idea that you originally set out to do well you risk missing perhaps something that perhaps something great yeah yeah you really you really you really do risk that yeah um, and also, and, and then I think it's also important, you know, and, and this was actually, I would say is another thing I learned from the reality world, which is, is kind of, uh, you know, if your subject is a boring person, oh, forget you it. have a boring movie. Yeah. And, uh, when I met Danny, you know, he was, <laughs> he, he, I struck gold. I mean, he, the guy is yes. absolutely amazing, uh, person and, um, you know, he's, he's the whole works. He's funny. He's smart. He's yeah. endearing. Uh, he's odd, <laughs> you know, he's, he's everything you could he's want. A in a, in a, like, he's a genius. guy's a genius. Um, and he has a very magnetic personality. Uh, he's, he's someone that you just, you just want to watch him. And so, uh, it reminded, so, to be honest, like, like he reminded me, he didn't necessarily remind, remind me of these two guys, but your film reminded me of it. And this idea of being drawn to this particular this particular character reminded me of how I felt watching American movie. Yeah, very much so. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, when I first met Danny and it was a lot, and a lot of the way he expresses himself and set the words he uses yeah. when he's like, dude, or sweet, you know, it's like, um, very much, uh, that. And I really made sure it was kind of interesting. You know, I, I really, I mean, American movie is one of my favorite movies. Okay. I was going to uh, ask you it, 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 how it may have influenced you as a filmmaker or this particular well, film. Yeah. I mean, American movie is, is one of my favorite films, yeah. uh, documentaries. And, and I had to, um, I, 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 of course I rewatched it quite a few times while I was doing Strat style, but uh, I really wanted interesting. to, yeah, but I also want to make sure that you know, I, well, I can't do another American movie. No, that's right. But the story, the storylines are are quite similar in a, in some ways, right. and and really, they're and this is why I think that people relate to American movie and to Stratstyle so well is that in both movies, what the person is doing, you know, it matters to the movie, but it's not what the movie's about. In American movie, he wants to make a great movie. In right. in Stratstyle, he wants to make a great violin. Yeah. But in both those movies, they could be wanting to do something else. They could be wanting, like, a, you see, Danny could be wanting to make a great race car, or or Mark Borchardt could be wanting to make, you know, I don't know, <laughs> discover, you know, a great um, a great cake. You know, it's it would still be the same movie because these movies are about the people and about the human condition, about right. their hopes, and their that's dreams, right. and, and that's really the thing. Man, having to. Borrow a car and do all that, or terrible. I think I'm just gonna stay here tonight. There's nothing in there for me except, well, yeah, there's a bunch of violin stuff. I'll bring the violins out here and we can film. I'll show you how to build a violin in the car, which I could do if I wanted to. I built a lot of stuff in bed, so I could do it in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Why am I bleeding? It's really bad, dude. Bumps and stuff. It's from the weather, man. Gotta have some heat going in there. Blizzard. And as a side note, you know, I didn't, and I made sure not to show Danny or tell him anything about American movie. He had no idea of that oh, movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I that's did good. not yeah. want, yeah, I didn't want him to. Um, manifest into Mike Shank. 
yeah. What exactly? Or or actually um, see that movie and go like, well, are you making this movie that's going to make fun of me? Or you know, like I'll bet absolutely. I, I just did not want any of that. Yep, uh, absolutely. But uh, you know, one of the one for me, one of the great moments <laughs> in my life was uh, at Slam Dance this past year, which is where where the movie premiered, where Stratstyle premiered, and won a grand uh, jury award and an audience for uh, audience award for best doc. Yeah, I did. We we did very well. I was very very uh, very pleased there. Um, but uh, Mark Borchart was also there with a short film. No way. Yep. Wow, so, he's still alive. He is alive and making movies, and he is as much as himself as ever. Really? And so we were at a party, and <laughs> and I was like, "Holy shit!" Were the Packers no- on the TV? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he was. But you know, but he's. I mean, he's 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 you know he's grayer. He's got a long you know he's got a, a big goatee going on, long like sort of like beard. But he's still he's still Mark. You know? So I I introduced myself and then and and at that point you know Danny had seen American movie. I oh, finally wow. should. Okay, okay. And and Danny was it was there also. We, you know we flew him in to Slam Dance. Every, everybody was there, and so I introduced the two of them to each other, and then just stepped back. Oh. <laughs> and I was just like, let it happen. Yeah, and I was just like, and I talked to one of the programmers. You know, one of the programmers there, uh, Clementine is her name, hmm. and and we I was like look and we were just both just like oh my god it's like i perfect. wasn't sure if the universe if a black hole was going to form and the universe was going to just was going to just implode upon itself at oh, that man. moment like that's that, it but, we're done <laughs> yeah because i was like these guys are gonna either like each other and get along or or they're gonna hate each other but they <laughs> they got along great so i so i just took all these pictures of mark and danny you know and it was just oh it was a great that moment. is just perfect <laughs> But yeah, just get Danny and Mark together and, you know, and, and they hit it off, you know, so it was, that was for me a real fun moment. <laughs> I, I want to ask you spending, you know, we spend a lot of time with our subjects. You spent um, a lot of time with Danny. How has that relationship changed you personally? Um, obviously, professionally, um, it already has to some degree and it remains to be seen how this plays out, right? How, how this plays out for you. But how has it changed you personally? I, I mean, over the course of time, and, and this is the kind of thing where, you know, you, as a, as a filmmaker, you have to sort of be careful, uh, because if you, if, cause for any doc filmmaker, if you spend, you know, if you're making a real movie, if you're spending a significant time, you're gonna, you're, sort of, you're gonna fall in love with your subject. You know, you're gonna yeah, care for your subject thing. very much. Right. So it's a very close relationship and, and you're gonna, and you're gonna want to have your subject, you know, succeed, or you're going to really despise the person, hate the person and want to see them dead. I mean, there could be that yeah, that's too. true, for sure. If you know, if you're doing a movie about a, a despicable murder. Yeah. But in the case of Danny, um, you know, I had to make sure that I wasn't involving myself in his life to the point where I was really coloring the movie too much. Yeah. But certainly, um, I, I, I care very much for, for his, his life. And I really hope that, you know, the best for him and I want the best for him. And I think he deserves, you know, a, a, you know, good things to happen. The movie has changed him. I mean, one thing, and it's it's good in this way, but I do feel almost like when um, explorers discover sort of some some hidden sort of native colony somewhere in the Amazon oh, that's yeah. never seen humanity, you know, for about six months you get to witness that, but then then you've affected that forever. And, right. and it's never going to be the same again. 
Right. And so, so Danny now is, is certainly not the same guy he was uh, two years ago yeah. that we see in the movie. He, yeah. He's really grown a lot, which is good. It's, it's good for him. And it's, you know, but, but I could never make this movie again now. I mean, this, you know, there couldn't, you know, a follow up would show a very different guy. Um, is he still know. in Ohio then? He's still in Ohio. He's no longer in that farmhouse, but he is still in Ohio. Um, but he's carving violins day and night. Uh, working to get the hell out of Ohio. <laughs> so, he is. The idea is he just wants to be somewhere else uh, and yes. somewhere where he's not just so – where it's not just so solitary and where he's so alone yeah. and really not getting to sort of um, intermingle and you know, sort of meet other violin makers and violin, you know, violinists. That's exactly uh, it. He, he needs to be around his tribe, his people. Exactly, exactly. And so that's become a thing because his entire life um, – you know, in that, you know, really in that movie is true. It's most of his social life was via social media. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, hopefully that can be also turned into the real world. What has the festival circuit been like for you and what was your strategy? It's been great. It seems like it's of, been great. Yeah, <laughs> it's, the resume it's already is very impressive, right? We premiered at Slamdance yeah. and the idea, of course, and I think every filmmaker, if they don't know this, then they better learn it fast you know you make a movie and you want to get it into a into a festival and you want to get into the biggest festival that there is the most important festival that there is which is of course is sundance in the united states um and you know if you get into sundance you're 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 going to be in pretty good shape in a lot of ways or at least it's as as good a chance of being in pretty good shape right. as any as there is um and after that i mean really honestly i do think slam dance is the next one because it is in park city at the same time it's been around forever. Uh, it's a great festival, and so and and important people go see movies there. You know, I mean, you you do have every distrib- distributor go. So when we found out that we got into Slam Dance, you know, that was that was like hitting the gold mine. That was you know, huge, I mean, right? The jackpot. Yeah, that was huge. So um, and so you know, we were lucky. And and one of the requirements there is that you have to be a first time f- uh, filmmaker. And and there, how did you was, get around that? Well, I was a first time featured documentary guy that's right so so you know if it's your first doc or your first narrative you know that works so um i would not have been eligible if i had made a narrative film there you go Uh, so and 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 it's a one-time thing i i'm you know now i'm slam dance alum so you know i have (laughs) uh, so i can't enter another movie there in competition yes um but no it was a fantastic festival so so when that you know when we found out that that was happening uh, we went, we went just gangbusters. So, you know, we, we had, um, you know, it's, it's, it can, you can do, you can do park city in a variety of budgets, you know, you can either slum it and, you know, sleep on people's, you know, apart, you know, floors and whatever. Uh, or you can try to do it if you have a bit of money, you know, do it as, as in style as possible. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, we had a whole condo and, and, you know, we flew everybody that was involved in the movie, we flew them all in and, and it was, it was a great time. It was really kind of like that, Thing, I mean, did Danny's brother come out as well? Uh, cousin, no, 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 it's cousin, David did not cousin. come out, yeah, you know, David, yeah, he's the Mike Shank of the movie. No, he did not, uh, he, he didn't he come out, he didn't out. come out with his sex doll, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he did, no, he, I'm sure he wishes he could have, but yes, I mean, yeah, we didn't have unlimited uh funds, but um, <laughs> but uh, but we did, but Danny was there, and and uh, of course, myself. And for this, and the show, the movie plays twice, you know, in, in Slam Dance. And for the second show, we were able to surprise the audience with uh, 
a special, a special, very special guest that we flew in from Europe. So, oh uh, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so we actually had Razvan also there, which was amazing. And um, and then we had a party, and, and he played. Um, so it was it was incredible. If you're there with a movie, um, I mean, this is this is why I would say it's so important. These 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 festivals, um, for better or worse. I mean, people hate the fact that they're so important. I I'm not crazy about the fact that these festivals are so important. Oh, Ben, you yourself I, know about you know distribution and digital yeah. distribution at at, an, at a very early you know point in your career. Right. Yeah. But it's but it's one of those things where you know you have to realize that they are important and. And uh, you got to try to grab that brass ring. And if you do, you know, if you get in the Sundance or if you get in the Slamdance, um, you know, when they make that announcement, uh, because, you know, they, the other thing is also you find out, you know, a couple of weeks before yeah. they make the announcement, whether you're in or not, so, and you have to keep quiet on it, you know. So um, around Thanksgiving is when they when they let everybody know, yeah. like that, that, that week of Thanksgiving. So. Uh, so, you know, on Thanksgiving, you're either really happy or really sad. <laughs> So, um, so, you know, this, this one, I was very happy when they announce to the public, the movies that have gotten in, which happens, I guess in, in December or whatever, um, you know, yeah, your phone starts ringing, you know, you, you start getting emails from, from agents and from representatives that want to see your movie. Suddenly, suddenly everyone loves you, you know, and that's a real, um, that's a real exciting moment. It's very, and it's also kind of a scary moment because as a filmmaker, you've been struggling to get arrested, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and now, and now suddenly, you know, you have these people who, because you've gotten that stamp of approval from an important festival. And the film is Strad style. Stefan, how can we see this film? Well, as of now, we're still doing the festivals. Yeah. Uh, um, the next, uh, we're, we're pretty much done as I would say, sort of done with the American circuit. Um, because the the big festivals all kind of happen in the spring and very early summer, right? Uh, so, but we have a couple more. Um, the next time the movie's going to be playing to the public is in August, August twelfth. It's just a one time screen, and it's part of um, the True False Film Festival, yeah. Which uh, of course is a is a really super important festival. Uh, nice. They have a, a screen. They do a screening kind of thing of just one movie, and they do it. Uh, they call it the Boondoddle. And it's um, yeah, right. it's in yeah. August in in Columbia, Missouri, and uh, so our movie was chosen to be that movie. So uh, so we're showing it there, um, and then uh, it'll be in Milwaukee at the Milwaukee Film Festival. But uh, right now we're working on closing a deal, okay. uh, which has taken a long time. And I will say, and I will say that that's the that's the flip side to the whole thing is that about Park City's, you know, you hope you're going to walk out of there with a deal because you see the big multi million dollar deals that no, happen. No. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> these that things take some, time. Yeah, it, it happens for a couple of movies, but for most movies, these things take time. So we're finally getting to the point now where we're about to uh, to close a deal. So Fantastic. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it means that the movie will probably be available. Um, again, it's a little too early to tell for sure, but it should probably be available to be seen by the public in general in the United States uh, in February. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, looking forward to it. S- Stefan, one of the final things that I, that I will ask uh, a guests is this idea of, of a documentary life. And so what I'd love to hear in your words is how is it that you live and lead your own documentary life? Well, I mean, I think, I think one of the good news, I mean, there's good news and there's bad news about, you know, these days, 
as people always, you know, people, no matter what era it is, people go like, ah, oh, things these days aren't like they were and they're tough. <laughs> they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was, and I was like, well, I was there then it wasn't easy then, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, I think one the, the, the bad news is everybody's making movies because everyone's got great cameras yep. So and, and great editing equipment. And that's that's the rough news because there's a lot of noise you got to get through. Um, but the good news is, is that if you're a good filmmaker, I mean, it's still just as hard to make a good movie as it's ever been. So, right. you know, so you still if, need to be able to tell a good story. Yeah, exactly. And, and that hasn't changed. And I don't think that the uh, the number of good stories is, to be quite honest, has changed a whole lot either. Mm-hmm. The good news is that that I think that we're in the golden age of documentary film. Mm. I think that this is the best time ever. I do to too, man. I really firmly believe that. Yeah. It's um, not just because the cameras themselves lend themselves so beautifully to making a movie. I mean, I was a crew of one when I did Stradstyle. I, there's, just no, there's just no way I could have done that, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I was – as I was doing this movie, I was sort of imagining the Maisels, you know, making their movies, <laughs> shooting on film. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, with having to have, you know, these huge sun gun lights to, you know, illuminate, you know, some salesman trying to sell Bibles in the snow. <laughs> right. you know, it's, and trying to run sound at the same time. It's it's hard to Yeah, hard separate to sound yeah. and just, you know, all insanity. And, and so, you know, in terms of making it, we're in a golden age. But also in terms of the distribution and in terms of, of the public watching them. Yeah. This is the best time it's ever been to make a documentary. Um, the The rub is, is that since there are so many more, you know, the prices have gone down in terms of what people are paying for them initially. Uh, so, you know, if you make a good movie, you hope that it gets legs and that it has kind of, you know, a long tail where people will watch it. But um, But that's really up to the movie and up to the filmmakers in terms of, you know, marketing their movie, but also if the movie itself gets good word of mouth. So... Uh, I think it's a great time to make movies because there's so many avenue outlets for it. But because the money, you know, because the money might not be there, you, you do have to generally figure out other ways of making money. Also, um, like I said, I've done a lot of editing uh, for television, right. so so I've done that, and that's paid the bills. TV does pay pretty well, so you know I've been lucky that way. Yeah, totally. Um, lately, actually, for the last maybe five years, uh, I have a I, I started my own little company here, sort of post production and. You know, we can do. I can do A to Z. I can do everything: uh, sound, picture, you name it. Um, but really, I'm focusing mostly nowadays on special effects. Believe it or not, for uh, that does for, not surprise me. That yeah. even given <laughs> given given the early days with the last broadcast and what you yeah. were doing, you were doing special effects then. Yeah, and how you were so manipulating I, so images then. Yeah, it was. Yeah, see, exactly. So, so, um, so that has that. That for me, I've been very, very fortunate. I hope to, you know, continue to be that fortunate. But that has paid the bills uh, in terms of of my sort of day to day existence. You know, that you have to. Yeah, I think I think to be able to make it nowadays, you can't be too much of a specialist. You have to be try to try to be as good as you can at, at everything you do. I'm not saying you know, be mediocre, but I think that having um, knowledge about more than one aspect of filmmaking is really important yeah stefan this this is this has been just a fantastic conversation um a long time coming and i'm 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 really excited to share this uh 
with with my listeners. And thanks for for geeking out with me that first uh, the first part of this on on the last broadcast. Uh, that was a big influence on my work and 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 my career. And uh, I think that you have an incredible uh, amount of valuable insight. And I love Strad style, and I can't wait for this film to be seen by everybody. I know we went longer than I had initially, you know, set this up for. So this has been an awesome <laughs> conversation, man. I love it. Thanks, man. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. All right. And uh, I'll give an address later on so you can send me an official Strad style uh, headscarf. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, I can get you a hat. Yeah, for sure. Take yeah. care, man. Thanks so much. Right, man. I'll see you. All right. Bye bye. All the sheep in your flock remain Tied in stables, tied in stables Bless you, mother and don't forget, if you're interested in a guide to help you navigate the fundamental aspects of doc filmmaking, the things that every doc filmmaker should know, then get our free doc filmmaking course, The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Cool.